Today, we're really excited to have Bradley Fugel, who is a current advisor to multiple healthcare organizations, entrepreneurs, and other healthcare companies. Brad was recently the Senior Vice President and Chief Healthcare Commercial Market Development Officer for Walgreens. Before that, he was the Executive Vice President and Chief Strategy and External Affairs Officer of WellPoint, now Anthem, and Senior Vice President of National Accounts and Vice President of Enterprise Strategy at Aetna. Brad, welcome to the podcast. We're really excited to have you today. Thank you for having me. I look forward to our conversation. Awesome. So Brad, we have a tradition here on the Pulse podcast where we ask our guests, what did you want to be when you grew up? Uh, I wanted to be a park ranger when I was a little kid and then decided, realized that I actually really don't like camping that much. So I figured uh, being a park ranger was not for me. That's so interesting. What uh, led you to healthcare from your early aspirations as a park ranger? <laughs> I should have been a vet, right? Uh, a veterinarian. You know, it's sort of a lot of life is uh, you know, serendipity. I, uh, after I graduated from college, I was an accountant, uh, CPA for an auditing firm. And it just so happened that the firm I joined did a lot of healthcare, of hospitals and, and health plans and, and medical groups. And so I, if you went to work at that particular firm, you wound up doing healthcare work, which I did. It wasn't necessarily my intent, but then I realized I really enjoyed the field that, you know, it's something that everyone cares about and it's really important and has an impact on everybody's life. Uh, and so I uh, just got excited about it and decided uh, that's what I was going to do. Great. Well, thank you for that intro and for answering that question. We today really want to dive into your experience on the retail side of healthcare. So specifically, one of the sort of traditions we have on the podcast is to really deep dive on the startup side and really the innovation and intersection between digital and health. But we also understand that a lot of traditional players, for example, retailers have started foraying into the healthcare industry. So for example, Walmart, Best Buy, Amazon, CVS, Walgreens, they're all part of a growing list of retailers who have announced publicly that they have plans to enter and or expand their presence in direct-to-consumer healthcare. With that context in mind, can you provide an overview for our listeners of this trend of retailers entering the healthcare industry and how this is different from the way retailers have traditionally thought about their involvement in healthcare? Yeah, of course. You know, one of the things that's interesting about it is that you know each of those four companies you mentioned are, are taking very different approaches to uh, to their entry into the healthcare marketplace, which I'll, I'll come back to. But you know, when you when you look particularly at drugstores, uh, you know, even more so than maybe Best Buy or Walmart, is you know they have a, a bit of an existential challenge. Uh, one is that you know, most of their revenue comes from pharmacy, uh, and uh, while the pharmacy market is growing, the profitability is being constrained by the pharmacy benefit managers and, and other payers. Uh, that are trying to uh, you know, keep their costs low. So there's a lot of pressure on the margins for pharmacy. And then, you know, as, as everybody knows, the retail part of the uh, country's uh, businesses are being you know, greatly impacted by uh, online shopping, whether that's Amazon or Walmart or, or, or Target or other kinds of companies that are doing that. So what you have is you have a retail environment, again, particularly for drugstores, where you have more space than you need because it's hard to continue to get the kind of customer throughput that you need in order to, to turn the, the inventory. So, you know, that then leads, you know, these organizations to think about a couple of things. One is they have a brand, uh, many of them, that is related to healthcare, and there's a lot of consumer trust of pharmacists. 
So uh, they have the, you know, the ability then to expand their footprint into healthcare. And secondly, they have a lot of space that they need to figure out what to do with because they, as I said, they have more space than they, they need. So uh, I think that is uh, an impetus for why they're looking at uh, expanding into healthcare. And obviously, healthcare is a growing market as well. So uh, that's, I think, what's led a lot of the retailers into that space. Um, as I said, they're you know we're all taking a little bit of a different approach. You know, Walmart uh, has done a number of different things, really leveraging their couple million employees that they have in the states. I think they're the largest private employer in the U.S. Uh, so they do all sorts of centers of excellence programs and other kinds of things that they're trying out on their employees. But the big initiative that they announced a couple of years ago was the fact that they were going to build a few thousand, I believe it was four thousand, uh, Walmart health centers, which were going to be owned. Uh, full primary care su- uh, suites. We also had dental services, labs, radiology, and whatnot. And so they launched the first one of the, a couple of those in Georgia a couple of years ago. And that was going to be their plan, particularly uh, given the lack of access where Walmart is in some rural communities. So that was their strategy. Now, there's been a, a turnover of leadership there. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see. Uh, there have been some reports that they're slowing down that. Uh, we can talk about some of the reasons for that and some of the challenges uh, for retailers to enter this space. But so, but anyway, that's their stated strategy, even if it's slowed down a little bit. You know, Best Buy, obviously, technology-oriented, Geek Squad, that sort of stuff. Uh, they sell a lot of uh, uh, PERS programs, personal emergency response systems. So they you know, bought a company in that space. So they're really leaning more into the device technology, remote patient monitoring kind of aspects of, of healthcare, which sort of fits with their brand. CVS and Walgreens are looking to enter into essentially creating CVS's case, uh, health hubs, which are you know more complete primary care offerings with lab services and other kinds of things. But those are done with CVS-owned nurse practitioners that they control. On the Walgreens side, uh, they've been looking to do something very similar to that through their neighborhood health destinations, as they refer to it. and uh, But they've been doing that more in a partnership approach as opposed to an ownership approach. Uh, Walgreens doesn't run any of its own retail clinics anymore. They're run by health centers, excuse me, health systems. And they are getting more into primary care, but there we have there they're doing it through relationships with Village MD. I think you had Paul Martino on a prior podcast. Uh, you may have spoken about that relationship. Uh, then LabCorp, they're, you know, they've stated they're going to build about 500 patient testing centers within Walgreens with, with LabCorp. So they're looking to do it through a partnership approach. So, you know, they're all trying to expand into aspects of healthcare in different ways, but definitely a trend, as you point out, for retailers to try to get into that space. Thanks for sharing out that. Definitely sounds like there's a lot of both the more adjacent players like the CVSs that already have the pharmacy along with more non-traditional players like a Best Buy and more recently with Amazon another retailer that doesn't have a brick and mortar footprint, but still has similar tailwinds of having a lot of offerings, having familiarity with the customer, thinking about how they can expand their presence in healthcare. Given that familiarity with the customer and customer throughput and foot traffic, do you see the play for retailers currently as more direct to consumer? Or is there also a route in your mind that's more direct to business or direct to enterprise, especially given how a lot of healthcare is funneled in a B2B or D2B model? Yeah, it's a great question because I, you know, the natural place for them to look is in the DVC marketplace, right? Because you've got patient, excuse me, uh, customers that are walking in. They have all sorts of different insurance. They work for all sorts of different employers. So it's a little bit harder from an enterprise perspective. But the problem is the direct consumer marketplace, at least in traditional healthcare, is is small. So within healthcare, people they have insurance or have a job. They're 
often expecting somebody else to pay for things and not have to pay out of pocket for you know, very much on, on their own. So I think the retailers look to is look for the kinds of services that tend to be more patient or customer consumer directed or uh, chosen. So you know, it wouldn't make sense to open a surgery suite, for instance, because that's not something that a particular patient would choose. That'll be, you know, by the time they get there, they'll have been through some aspects of the healthcare system, they'll have interacted with their health plan and, and whatnot. And so it's things where uh, in, uh, the individuals have a bit more latitude and choice about what they do. So that's why looking at things like uh, you know optical services, which some of the retailers are in, dental services, which some of the retailers are also in, and then primary care and related, you know, kind of urgent care, which also is, you know, something that uh, consumers have uh, quite a bit of uh, choice about. And then the other is, you know, things where convenience is important. So for instance, with the relationship that Walgreens has with LabCorp, you know, if you've been to, uh, you know, a patient service center, they tend not to be in the, you know, the easiest to get to places because, uh, you know, they're really trying to drive a, you know, a cheap footprint. Uh, so it's not really a convenient place for a lot of consumers to go. Whereas, you know, again, drugstores are very convenient to everybody. And so having things where convenience is a differentiator, like you know, getting your tests done, is also a, a, key, uh, a key differentiator for those retailers. That sounds great. Thanks for sharing that. One thing you also mentioned is the unique geography and the local presence of a lot of these retailers, especially the brick and mortar pieces like the Walgreens, the World, Walmart, etc. Given how localized healthcare can be, for example, regulations can vary state by state, populations differ by county, etc. How do retailers scale their offerings to leverage economies of scale while still serving the needs of local populations? You know, it's, it's really, you know, I spent most of my career kind of in either uh, consulting to or working in health plans in, in the more traditional healthcare landscape. And, you know, having spent six years at Walgreens, you really see the orientation difference between a retail organization that needs to kind of encourage people to come shop there with merchants, you know, in terms of, you know, thinking about placement of products and, you know, pricing and all that sort of stuff, which is very foreign within healthcare. Um, and so, you know, retailers are re- really good at package the offerings within their stores to the local community that they serve, you know. And again, given that, you know, Walgreens and CVS uh, is pretty much everywhere Americans are, um, you know, outside of maybe some rural areas, which are less well served by the drugstores, traditional drugstores, you know, they're really tailored. And in some instances, you know, the pharmacist there is an important part of the community's healthcare system. People come in, they talk to the pharmacist, particularly seniors, uh, you know, about not just drugs, but about over-the-counter things and, and, and the like. So they really are part of those communities. And I think that's uh, really critical to what they're trying to do. But uh, to your point, having a few good services in a few stores just doesn't matter. It's just not enough. So you've got to scale things nationally. And so one of the other things that they're quite good at, retailers are quite good at logistics, supply chain. You know, you think about all the products that are coming in and out of, you know, coming into stores, drug supply chains, you know, in the big box retailers, obviously Walmart's the fourth largest pharmacy chain in the country. So, you know, they're just really good at that logistical stuff. And they're also really good at building things. You know, there was a period of time in Walgreens when, when it was in its rapid growth phase where, you know, they were opening up a store every couple of days. So, that, you know, they're just really good at you know, standardizing and scaling but also adapting to their local communities. So, you know, something that I think traditional healthcare systems could learn an awful lot from. Great. And you know, we talked a lot about how retailers in general approach their healthcare strategy. Can you help us think about 
how we compare and contrast the strategies and strengths and weaknesses of different retailers, and also broadly how retailers stack against more traditional healthcare providers when we're thinking about adjudicating care. Yeah, I think a couple of things. As I said before, each is taking you know a slightly different approach. You know, Walgreens with partnerships with Village MD and, and other companies, uh, CVS building their own kind of nurse practitioner-led models, uh, Walmart building more full-service primary care clinics, and a Best Buy focused more on, on devices and remote patient monitoring kinds of products. So a little bit different because it's sort of more connected with their geography and their brands. I think that you know, a challenge for companies like you know, Walmart is, you know, when you look at a CVS or a Walgreens, if you look at the drugstore, you know, 60, 70% of the revenue that's coming into those drugstores is from, is from drugs. So drugs, pharmacy is a very, very important, you know, it's the core of what they do. When you look at someone like Walmart, even though they've got three or 4,000 pharmacies, it's just, a, you know, it's, I don't remember the last step, but I believe it's less than 5% of their overall revenue is pharmacy. So they've got so many other things to deal with, right? They've got big stores, they've got to deal with Amazon and you know, the online explosion from that, that standpoint, they're in a you know, do or die struggle with you know, Kroger and, and Amazon on the grocery side. So they've got a lot of issues to sort through. So spending you know, tons and tons of money, which is what it takes to build out these kinds of clinics is really a challenge for them when there's other things that they could be spending, spending their money on. I think the other thing that companies like Best Buy and Walmart have is uh, when you think of a drugstore, you kind of see a drugstore in the healthcare space. You kind of can think of, yeah, Walgreens kind of healthcare. People don't think about Walmart that same way, even though they dispense a lot of drugs. They don't, they, you know, that's not, I ask you, what do you, what do you think about Walmart? You would say they're a big box retailer that sells you know, lawnmowers and a bunch of other stuff. So, so they have more of a brand issue to, 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 to deal with, I think, in the consumer's minds. And I don't think CVS and Walgreens, you know, have that same issue. People see them as part of the healthcare system uh, to some extent. But the, the problem they have beyond challenges of, of getting people in the door to use these services is that, you know, people, I think, give uh, CVS and Walgreens permission to do certain kinds of healthcare things. But to kind of change the consumer's mindset about what a Walgreens store is or a CVS store is, it's going to take a lot of time. You know, a lot of people think of the drugstores as convenience stores, not really because they don't use the pharmacy that much. So like, they still have a brand issue, but they've got a head start over companies like Walmart and Best Buy and the grocery stores that also, you know, many of whom also uh, provide pharmacy services. I think it is really interesting what you talk about around consumer mind tricks. Healthcare is one of those industries that is so dependent on building that trust. And so it takes a lot of effort and time and experience for non-traditional players to occupy that mind share in the heads of consumers that they are actually a place where you can trust the pharmacist. You can go there and get your life-saving medication in addition to potentially other things. If we think about med tech or, or other devices or supplementary products that may help. So absolutely, I think this push about what CVS demonstrates or communicates to a consumer versus Walmart or versus even Amazon or Best Buy. So now I think the question that people have is, what's the limit for retailers? Right now, they're starting to think about creating these sort of pseudo outpatient clinics, thinking about, as you mentioned before, turning around their real estate space, thinking about expanding pharmacy offerings. But what's the, what's the threshold? And if there is any, you know, I think let's assume that all these organizations, particularly CVS and, and, and Walgreens, stay committed to this path. You know, I, I don't think Best Buy is in the same category. It's sort of much more uh, of a niche 
and Walmart will see if they stay committed to building out these 4,000 um, health centers. If they do, that will be enormously disruptive, but will also cost billions and billions of dollars. So we'll see what they decide to do. You know, on, on the Walgreens and CVS side, um, I think that if they continue to invest and commit to it, you could see, you know, five, 10 years from now, where you've got a much more engaged pharmacist and pharmacy providing, you know, uh, additional cognitive services as opposed to just dispensing drugs. And then you'll have a, you know, a cluster of other healthcare services, you know, maybe not in every store, but sort of in heat geographies, and, uh, which will serve as kind of a, a healthcare hub in that community. So that would include primary care, lab testing, perhaps dental services or other kinds of services uh, adjacent to that. And then the retail aspect of the store will be smaller and will we'll have a, you know, a more limited offering. So perhaps you won't have as many snacks and other kinds of things that you might traditionally have. It might look more like if you've been to a Walgreens or CVS that's inside of a hospital or a health system. You go in there, you know, it has a lot more pulse oximeters and other kinds of services, which is, you know, pulse oximeters are on everyone's minds these days, but things of that sort. Um, uh, and you know, much less in terms of kind of the uh, convenience store aspect. So I think if they stay committed to the strategy, which I think they will, uh, no time will tell, um, we will see uh, these drugstores looking quite a bit different than they look today. And how are traditional healthcare providers responding to all of this? Yeah, I think initially they were very concerned that the retailers were going to come in in a big way and uh, either take away their patients or fragment the care of, of the patients. And that was never really that big of a risk, at least in my view, as, you know, for instance, in traditional retail clinics, most of the people that, uh, I believe half the people, if my recollection is right, that go into those clinics don't actually have a doctor. You know, they're just accessing, you know, convenient care for, uh, you know, ear infections and other kinds of things. So I don't think it was never, I don't think it was really that big of a threat, but I think they've reacted in two ways. One is that they decided they can learn a lot from retailers. So Walgreens has partnerships with two, three dozen health systems. They, you know, they staff uh, the uh, the clinics, you know, Advocate Aurora in the Chicagoland area, um, Providence, St. Joe's out in, in, in Washington State, Oregon. So they're partnering with them. Because part of what the health systems are trying to do is to kind of learn from retailers about how to get uh, better at patient engagement. And instead of building out their own clinics, they see you know, the value in putting those clinics in you know, really good real estate that drugstores tend to have. So that's, uh, I think, one thing that they've learned is that you know, these aren't threats. There's opportunities to expand their reach into the community by developing partnerships with some of these retailers uh, so that care isn't fragmented, that if you have a follow-up visit with an endocrinologist, you can do that with a nurse practitioner in Walgreens as opposed to having to drive to you know, the campus of a hospital uh, and you know, park and you know, wander around, get lost in a hospital and all that sort of stuff, as opposed to just kind of popping and getting follow-up uh, care like that. So, so I think, as I said, two things. One is kind of trying to learn as much as they can from retailers about how to do patient engagement. And then secondly, to uh, try to incorporate these retail footprints uh, into their overall uh, health system ecosystem. Thanks for sharing that. That's really fascinating when you mentioned the collaboration model, because I agree that there's a lot of information and knowledge sharing that can happen across both sides in terms of the intricacies of how to manage care that traditional providers are very much more intimately familiar with, along with how you think about talking to the customer, being in the customer's mind that more big box retailers know. But I'll push a little bit here and think about if retailers and providers do see this as a threat. Because I can also imagine 
because providers operate on such thin margins, any amount of traffic of patient services to retailers, specifically in cases where they don't have a collaborative model, so they're not getting a cut of that patient's care vis-a-vis the retailer, that they would feel that they need to do something to sort of bring the customer back to their more traditional hubs. So do you see that at all? And, and what do providers do when they, when they think about how they actually maintain their familiarity with the customer? Yeah, so I think perhaps two things about that. You know, one is that the health systems are generally only concerned about primary care and kind of low acuity primary care because the referral flow that goes into the health system from those providers, right? Primary care and health systems is traditionally a big money loser. Uh, so that's kind of what kind of concerned about. And that's why kind of partnerships like this, um, you know, can make some sense for, you know, the, to kind of share some of that cost and, and still retain the referral flow. Uh, but those that are more concerned about it have responded by building out primary care and other access points in the community. So, um, you know, if you drive around most communities, you will see lots of, you know, health system, urgent care centers, health system, primary care practices that are located in, in much more convenient places than they used to be. So they've sort of built out and expanded into communities so that they're almost as convenient and almost as ubiquitous, ubiquitous as uh, drugstores are. So those that are trying to you know, capture those patients are doing it by kind of emulating what the retailers have, which is a really convenient, you know, pleasant footprint. Yeah, it sounds like a little bit of a, a race that's very capital intensive, because as you mentioned, for even a retailer to build out more clinics or create more outpatient space, as well as these healthcare providers building out those clinics in further reaching geographies, it requires time and, and money and energy. So do you see eventually, given how capital intense that type of reach would be, more collaboration as people think about joint partnerships or alliances where you can sort of pull together funds to bring in ultimately better patient experience and better care coverage? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I, I think, you know, when you see it with some of the companies that have gone public recently, even like in Oak Street or on medical is, you know, they lose, you know, they tend to lose a lot of money because, and it's the same thing with, you know, building a, a drugstore. You lose money to begin with because you've got to build up a patient flow. You've got to build up uh, you know, foot traffic. So, you know, the cost of, of these sorts of expansions is not just the capital cost of building it, but it's the losses that you have to sustain for a few years until you get to the critical mass of, of customers that, that are required to be, to be profitable. So that's why some of these partnerships make sense, which is, Paul probably spoke about this, I don't know all the details of the Village MD Walgreens partnership, but I believe that some of it is around, you know, Walgreens helping to fund the expansion of these clinics in, in Walgreens because they are expensive. So I think the, uh, you know, in the same way with you know, some of the um, partnerships that Walgreens has with health systems that are operating clinics in their geographies is, you know, the space is built, you know, it just needs to be retrofit. There's already traffic that's coming in and out of that store already. So it shortens up the amount of time towards break-even and profitability uh, with partnerships of that sort. But you're right, I mean, it's incredibly capital intensive to build out these healthcare facilities. I want to pivot now to think about how payers are reacting to these changes. Can you share a little bit about what a lot of payers are thinking when they see this move by retailers? Is it adding further complexity to their work or is there a play for collaboration here thinking about the Aetna CVS merger and then the Walmart Humana talks about mergers as well? 
Well, one of the big challenges for the healthcare services within these retailers is even though they have lots of traffic coming in and out, they're not ne- it's not necessarily traffic that's looking or interested in you know going and seeing a doctor or a nurse practitioner, right? So you know, one of the reasons that um, you know CVS Netna you know, makes some sense, and you know, I'm really I'm really excited to see how that plays out and whether it works, is that you know you have a, a patient flow from Aetna, Aetna patients that you can you know encourage to go through the CVS channel through the health hubs. Uh, you know, I think uh, Karen Lynch, the CEO, or CVS Health CEO, former Aetna CEO, uh, said that they're going back into the exchange markets, the ACA exchange markets, and they're going to focus on geographies where they have a lot of these health hubs already built out. So, you know, they're going to try to test that model. So, you know, you can, as the payer, either force, if you want to be aggressive about it, but if not force, you can encourage and incent, provide information to patients to use those clinics. That's harder to do in a partnership approach because it doesn't always work quite that easily or seamlessly. So, um, so, so again, I think that'll be interesting to see, you know, whether that, you know, how that really plays out, but I think it's a really exciting model to have a market test of. So on the payer side, I think they look at it in a couple of ways. One is that a lot of the partnership discussions with the retailers that have drugstores are around the pharmacy aspect of things. So they're looking for help on adherence. They're looking for, for help on you know, getting folks flu shots and things of that sort. So that's a, you know, a natural area of partnership between the payers and, and the drugstores and Walmart that has drugs and pharmacies in their stores. So that's a lot of the conversation. But I think the payers are also looking for, and I can say this as a former payer myself, are always looking to figure out how to buy things more cheaply. So and to kind of maximize you know, a side of service. So I think that they are very interested in some of these models where they can have services delivered in a drugstore at a much, you know, at a lower price point than what that service would cost in a, you know, in a, in a doctor's office or in an outpatient setting. So I think they're quite interested in these models uh, to, you know, to try to drive patients into lower cost settings. That's really fascinating. Thanks for sharing those observations from your experience as well at WellPoint Anthem. I do see the opportunities for collaboration, especially from the payer side, as you said, around thinking about the customer care journey. You have information about that, helping customers reach care that's potentially more accessible with retailer footprints being more extensive in the U.S. and also with better adherence and even quick checkups like flu shots or vaccinations that retailers are so familiar with doing, especially when you think about the supply chain and how you get all of those sort of no regrets, low-hanging fruit treatments and services to the population. I'm curious, too, to understand if COVID-19 has impacted the way retailers, as well as traditional healthcare providers and payers, think about this potential for collaboration, especially now that we're entering to a point where vaccinations may become more accessible for more people, thinking about how you distribute treatments and even the testing for COVID more accessibly, more affordably to more people. Do you see that tailwind as something that feeds into this collaboration between the three players and that potentially lasting longer even after COVID? I think that will have a, a lasting impact in perhaps you know, one way, which I think is the telehealth and other kinds of, of services. You know, I think you know, that'll be, that, that has accelerated, obviously. It's come back down quite a bit, but, but still is, is at an elevated level. Uh, retailers have uh, those offerings as well, uh, which are being tapped into by some of the payers. Uh, and so I see that as, as something that will endure. 
I think one of the things that the, the drugstores and the pharmacies have an opportunity with now with COVID is to really just, you know, nail the vaccine distribution over the next several months. Uh, and I think if they do that and demonstrate that, there'll be a lot of collaboration between the system and payers to try to get people, you know, vaccinated. And the best place, the easiest place for people to get vaccinated is, is at these uh, drugstores and pharmacies. So I think there'll be a ton of collaboration and effort around that. Um, but I don't know that that in and of itself will really fundamentally change the basic dynamics, you know, to, of the relationship among payers, uh, retailers, and health systems. I think uh, that's on a natural trajectory towards partnership that's perhaps accelerated a little bit, but I don't know that it's going to be like a, a game changer where instantaneously the world is a different place. Now, having said all of this, do you think that this move of retailers into healthcare is ultimately good or bad for the consumer? I think it's good. I mean, I think it's hard to argue that more choices, more convenience, perhaps more affordable services is, is bad for consumers. And I, I think the only way it could be bad is if, you know, if the retailers create islands of care that are disconnected from the rest of, of the healthcare system. And that doesn't have to be the case. You know, there's all sorts of you know, connection points and interoperability that can that can exist to make that not make that not happen. And one of the things that's great about you know the partnerships that Walgreens has with those health systems is that the retail clinics are using the same you know EHRs that the health systems are using. So those patients are are, are, are well connected back into their into their systems. So uh, I see it as you know additive and uh, better for uh, consumers going forward. Touching off of more forward looking implications, what will you be paying attention to as you? continue to observe this kind of retailers moving to healthcare? So in addition to Amazon, um, you know, which everyone will be paying attention to, uh, the second was, uh, is, as, I, as we were talking about before, you know, whether Walmart really does commit to a big push into, into healthcare and into building out these primary care centers. If they do, I think that will be really exciting and solve a very important issue, which is access in, in rural areas where they tend to be. So I'm hoping they, they stick with that because I think that's really important for the country, frankly. And I think that they have the ability to do that if they're willing to you know, spend a bunch of money to, uh, to, to do so. Uh, the third thing I'll be uh, watching is, is to see how this integration of you know, Aetna, a PBM, you know, these health hubs and pharmacy work and whether they're really going to be able to drive a differentiated experience for Aetna customers, lower price points, um, and, and the like. Um, so if that does prove out, then you can easily see the rest of CVS, not the Aetna part, but the rest of CVS kind of unbuckling itself from an Aetna offering into a more broader commercial offering with other with other health plans. So I'm excited to see that. And then lastly, I'm you know excited to see how things work out with Walgreens and VillageMD. You know, that, that's a big bet that Walgreens has made. And I'm excited to see how that that plays out. So what's exciting about the space is that you know, you've got very different models out there. So it's really a great national test case for, you know, which if any of those uh, four or five different models will actually succeed and, and play out and drive value to the system and to patients. And are there any watchouts or words of caution you would have for retailers as they think about how they move further into the healthcare space? I think the caution is it's it's really hard. It's really hard to change people's perception about the kinds of services and offerings that they get with different kinds of retailers, right? So Walgreens and CVS, to a lesser extent, has been making a very big push into the beauty category for a long time. And it's really hard to get uh, consumers to say, hey, I'm going to go 
And, you know, the first place I'm going to think when I want to buy beauty products is Wal Walgreens. It's just, it's, it's very hard, right? I mean, you think of Ultra, Sephora, department stores, other kinds of specialty locations. So even something that seems a little simpler than, you know, a bigger push into healthcare is really hard to get in terms of a consumer perception. So I think the, uh, the watch out is just that, you know, it's going to take patience. There are going to be losses. Uh, and so, you know, the watch out is, is, is really to, to see how committed these entities are to, you know, sticking with it and you're keeping your eye on the five or 10 year vision where there are significant players in healthcare. The last piece I want to cover in this section is your thoughts on what the recent momentum in the U.S. run political reforms in the healthcare system and also potential implications of the Biden presidency for healthcare in the U.S. So what in your mind are some of the aspects you're watching out for or potential changes for healthcare in the U.S. from the political changes that are currently happening with Biden presidency and also COVID exacerbating some of the existing gaps we've systemically had in the U.S. Well, I think the you know it's hard to know what's ultimately going to pan out and what gets you know proposed and what gets passed. And the way I think about it is that we're in for a period of much more stability in the healthcare market. You know, you know support for the exchanges, even if there's an expansion of Medicare, it'd be more limited, and uh, you know maybe down for you know. As a, you know, drop eligibility down a few years to 60 or something like that. So I, I and I think it'll just be a lot more uh, coherent and rational, not to be negative at all about the prior administration, but just sort of a, you know, because it'll build off of what was passed 10 years ago. So I see that, but there, you know, there'll definitely be, you know, work done around, you know, pharmacy around, you know, drug pricing and the like. So I, I think that's something that we can expect to see, you know, on the, you know, the health equity piece, you know, which has obviously always been a problem, but much more heightened due to uh, you know, social justice issues last year, as well as uh, the disproportionate impact of, of COVID on, on Black and Brown communities. You know, I see that as an enormous opportunity for retailers. You know, retailers are in these communities, and they are an important part of the community. Uh, the pharmacist is an important part of the community. The store manager is an important part of the community. So, I, you know, I'm hoping that there's a way that, you know, as, as you know, we talked about vaccinations before, as vaccines roll out, that, you know, we're sure that those vaccines go into you know, all the relevant uh, kinds of pharmacies uh, in all different communities and not just you know, certain communities. So, and I know there's been some commitment to do that. So that I think is really, really exciting. And then to find ways to encourage these, these retailers in these communities to become uh, even more integrated parts of the healthcare system to provide more services and help in some way to address those health equity issues. You just described a lot of sort of how the private sector through these retailers can help with especially marginalized communities, but fill in some of these gaps in the current way care is administered and experienced in the U.S. What do you think are some of the biggest opportunities for high impact improvements in healthcare from a policy side? What are some of the lower hanging fruit that also has the potential for reaping a lot of benefits for the patient? I think a few things about that. I think one is kind of lower level healthcare providers can do an awful lot more than they're currently allowed to do. So pharmacists are trained medical professionals. Um, they know a lot about not just drugs, but about healthcare. Uh, and in many places, you know, they can't titrate medicines. They can't do a whole host of things that you would think that they should be allowed to do. 
uh, but they aren't because you know kind of of the you know the doctors guild and what the doctors say they have to do same with thing with nurse practitioners so one thing i think that would be really transformative and perhaps could be accelerated because of covid is to you know as as they say it's kind of a, a bit of a cliche now but let health professionals practice at the top of their license let them do those sorts of things takes a burden off of primary care and other physicians that so that they don't have to do that, that other people are perfectly adequately trained to do. And, and that extends into aspects of digital health uh, and things of that sort. So I think that's something that would be really impactful. And I also think that, you know, I'm of a couple of different minds about this, but, you know, one of the reasons that telemedicine kind of took off was, was pay parity between physical visits and digital visits. Uh, I understand the payers' concerns about that. I know that it's very easy to abuse, but I think if we really want to reach out into the community and reach out to rural areas and underserved areas, we need to find a way to make sure that telemedicine, text messaging, remote monitoring, all sorts of things are adequately you know, encouraged and adequately paid for. Because I think the risk is if even if the reimbursements for some of those services are just even marginally less than physical services, services, you know, the health system is going to naturally go to where they get paid more and start having people, you know, driving in for relatively routine things that can easily be done uh, either telephonically or by video. So I'm hoping that that's a change that we'll be able to figure out how to make uh, stick. Thanks so much for sharing those thoughts. The last piece I want to touch on before we conclude our interview is around personal leadership and advice you have for listeners career-wise. So we know you've worn many hats throughout your career and currently sit on the board of several companies while advising additional healthcare companies and entrepreneurs. You've seen a lot of successes and failures. So what are some of the factors that influence that success or failure on both the individual level and also at the company level? Uh, well, at the individual level, my advice is to be a student of the industry that you're in. You know, read about, you know, Stuff that even if it's not relevant to your job, read about stuff that's going on in, in healthcare. Read about what hospitals are doing. If you're a payer, if you're in hospital, read about what payers are doing. And just be a student of the industry. Try to understand as much of that industry as you can. And don't solely focus on kind of your job and what you need to know to do your specific job. Because the more you know about the industry, it's such an interconnected, particularly in healthcare, such an interconnected industry that understanding all the different counterparties and the environments that they're in is critically important. So that's, you know, that's the main individual advice, you know, beyond the usual stuff about, you know, doing what you like and work with people you like and, you know, things of that sort, but, you know, just study your industry. Uh, from an organizational uh, uh, perspective, I think the, um, you know, at the earlier stage companies that I deal with, though I've never worked in an early stage company, but, uh, is what seems to be, you know, successful is, uh, you know, adaptability and flexibility. And so, you know, if you're trying to do something and it's not quite working, don't stay committed to it just because you think that's the right idea, but sort of adapt a little bit and see if there's a different way to get to where you want to get to and, and grow the business. Um, you know, certainly the same can be said about big companies. The, the, the problem I, I see with big companies sometimes is, Often, you know, a lot of people have to say yes, and only one person has to say no. Oftentimes, and that so you know, staying committed to something, and similar to what you know, may or may not happen with Walmart, right? You make a big announcement, you head down a path, you know, you have a new CEO, you have a new head of health and wellness, and maybe there's a different direction now. So I think that's one of the things that's really hard for organizations to do is kind of uh, to stay committed over the long term for uh, certain initiatives. And what are some of the biggest learnings you've had throughout your career? I think that one is to stay calm 
<laughs> I think that people, uh, you know, I have instances where I didn't follow that advice and it's not, it's been, it's been bad. Um, I think that, you know, particularly in environments where there's a lot of stress in healthcare, you also, you know, particularly when I was doing Walgreens, you're negotiating, you know, long-term multi-billion dollar contracts with counterparties that really are the, the life of the organization and can be enormously stressful. You know, what you don't want to do is react. You know, if a counterparty does something or the government does something, whatever it is that, you know, just stay kind of calm and and relaxed because then you're best able to think about it, understand it, get the right input that you need in order to make a good decision. And then secondly, uh, is to think about things strategically. I think we often think about things tactically, like how am I going to solve this next issue without necessarily saying, okay, how does that solving that issue, either help or not help a longer term goal that I might have. So, you know, you might have to lose a few battles, as they say, to win the war, but you know, always kind of stay, you know, uh, committed to what it is you're trying to accomplish and make sure that the tactical decisions that you're making or not making will ultimately lead you there. Thanks so much, Brad, for all of your remarks. It's been a super insightful conversation. I hope you got something out of it as well. I always do from these things, uh, so I very much appreciate you uh, having me on and uh, look forward to seeing you soon.